This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Cults. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the life of Charles Manson and one of the most notorious cults in modern history, the Manson family. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. In part one of our two-part episode, we will focus on Manson himself, his life, his psyche, and how he turned from a troubled child into a spree murderer and infamous cult leader. In part two, we'll broaden our focus from Charles Manson to the cult he founded, known as the Manson family, or simply the family. We'll learn about the different members of this cult and the tactics Manson used to transform ordinary young people from law-abiding optimists into cold-hearted killers. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. I am special. I am not like the average inmate. I have put five people in the grave. I've been in prison most of my life. I am a very dangerous man. Those are the ominous words of one of America's most dangerous killers. This is a murderer so charismatic and manipulative that his murder weapon of choice was not guns or knives or axes. It was other human beings. I'm speaking, of course, of Charles Manson, uniquely infamous for murder by proxy. At his direction, members of Manson's cult, known as the Family, murdered seven people. The most famous of these murders took place at 10050 Cielo Drive in Beverly Hills. This was the home of the beautiful and hardworking actor named Sharon Tate and her husband, the famous young director named Roman Polanski. On August 9th of 1969, Sharon was eight months pregnant with the couple's first child and had friends checking in on her and keeping her company while Pulaski was away in Europe shooting a movie. By the end of the night, Sharon, her four friends, and her unborn child would all be dead at the hands of Charles Manson's followers. The shocking murder of a pregnant young actress sent Hollywood into a panic and embedded the crime in the public's consciousness. This horrific crime was followed a day later by the murders of Rosemary and Lena LaBianca. Once again, Manson didn't have to lift a finger. He aimed his followers like a gun, and they slaughtered mercilessly. In two consecutive days, the Manson family killed seven people. Manson wasn't a serial killer. He didn't stab or strangle his victims like John Wayne Gacy. He was a cult leader, charismatic enough to manipulate his followers into committing murder on his behalf. And it's Manson's role as a cult leader and his ability to commit murder by proxy that makes him so memorable. How was he able to convince seemingly normal, middle-class men and women to obey his every word? And how did Manson, the neglected child of a teenage mother, grow up to lead one of the deadliest cults in America? 
Before we get into what made Manson such an effective cult leader, we need to understand what a cult is. It's a controversial term to define because there has never been a single agreed-upon definition of what constitutes a cult. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Craig. One way of defining a cult is as a religion that differs significantly from the mainstream or from the religion it claims to be a part of. For example, a cult of Christianity is a cult that ostensibly behaves like it is a Christian religion, yet its central tenets undermine or contradict essential elements of the Bible or traditional Christianity. Quite a few American religions fit this definition for a cult of Christianity. But Christianity isn't the only religion that cults base their beliefs on. There are cults inspired by Buddhism, Taoism, Judaism, Islam, and other mainstream religions. Some experts don't even like to use the term cult, and instead prefer the term NRM, or New Religious Movement, because a new religious movement is not inherently malevolent or dangerous. And it's important to note that not all cults are based on religion. Under the broader definition of cult, die-hard fans of television shows and singers could qualify. However, for the purposes of our show, we will be using the word cult to refer to what the psychiatrist Robert Lifton calls a destructive cult. Destructive cults are defined as cults that systematically harm and kill others or themselves. There have been cult leaders throughout history, but destructive cult leaders didn't start getting widely noticed and recognized as such by the American public until the 1960s and 1970s. Charles Manson was one of the first cult leaders in modern American history to gain notoriety. Margaret Singer, another psychologist famous for studying cults, believed that the key to identifying a destructive cult was to look at the origin of a cult and the role of its leader. In order to really understand Manson's family, we need to first look at how Charles Manson came to create the cult in the first place. Although he would eventually found one of the most infamous cults in modern history, Charles Manson came from humble origins. Charles Manson's grandmother, Nancy Maddox, was a deeply religious woman, a fundamentalist Christian. She interpreted the Bible literally. Nancy and her husband, Charlie, had a happy life together with their children in Ashland, Ohio. Her children included Glenna, Eileen, Luther, and her youngest daughter, Ada Kathleen. But tragedy soon struck the family. Nancy's husband, Charlie, died in 1931 of pneumonia. Only two years later, young Eileen also died of chest congestion shortly after her graduation from business school. After the loss of her husband and daughter, Nancy became even more religious. She wanted her youngest daughter, Ada Kathleen, to grow up to be a moral and pious young woman. However, Ada Kathleen, who we will now refer to as Kathleen, wasn't interested in following in her mother's footsteps. She didn't want to dress modestly and go to church. She wanted to wear fashionable clothes to go to the movies and attend dances. She wanted to have fun like other girls her age. Kathleen began to sneak over from Ashland to bordering Irontown so she could attend dance clubs with her mother none the wiser. She met a handsome 23-year-old man by the name of Colonel Scott. Kathleen and Scott soon began dating. Kathleen hid the relationship from her mother, but Scott was hiding a bigger secret from Kathleen. He was actually married. When Kathleen became pregnant in 1934, Scott was quick to abandon the young teen. 
Kathleen wanted a father for her baby and settled on a man by the name of William Manson. On November 12, 1934, Kathleen gave birth to a boy whom she named Charles Mills Manson. Charles after her father and Manson after her new husband. Kathleen was still a teenager at heart. The 16-year-old didn't want to spend much time being a mother. She began leaving Charles with relatives so she could go out and party. Sometimes Kathleen would disappear for days with her brother Luther. Nancy began to worry that her two children were working together to rob people. Sadly for Nancy, her fears would soon be proven right. William Manson quickly grew sick of Kathleen's disappearances and divorced her in 1937. Kathleen couldn't care less. She was busy taking Charles Manson's biological father, Colonel Scott, to court to force him to pay child support. But $25 was all she'd ever get from Manson's biological father. Colonel Scott wanted nothing to do with his son. Did Charles grow up to resent his biological father for abandoning him? It's hard to say for sure, but an unsolved murder that took place in 1969 has some people theorizing that maybe Charles did hold a grudge against his father. In May of 1969, mere months before the Tate-LaBianca killings, Ashland detectives found a man viciously stabbed to death in his home, a kitchen knife left sticking out of his body. The man's identity? Darwin Scott, Colonel Scott's brother and Charles Manson's uncle. Given that the Tate murders were in part a result of Manson's feelings of resentment and desire for revenge, it's easy to suspect that Manson might resent the father who never cared about him and who made no effort to save Manson from an unhappy childhood. But before Manson became a vengeful cult leader, he was a deeply troubled child. In August of 1939, when Charles was four years old, his mother Kathleen and his uncle Luther teamed up to rob a man named Frank Martin. After a night of drinking, Kathleen and Luther lured Martin to a gas station, then assaulted and robbed him. They did a terrible job of hiding their identities, and police quickly arrested them. Charles may have watched as police arrested and took his mother away. In the fall of 1939, a judge sentenced Kathleen to five years in prison for her role in the robbery. With Charles' mother in prison, his family members needed to figure out who should care for the young boy. It was decided that he should stay with his mother's sister, Glenna, and her husband, Bill, and his eight-year-old cousin, Joanne, because they lived the closest to the prison where Charles' mother, Kathleen, was incarcerated. So Charles moved to McMechan, a small middle-class town where almost everyone worked for the mines or the railroad. By the time he moved to McMechan, Charles was already creating problems for his family. He was smaller than other boys his age, but he made up for it by misbehaving. He always wanted to be the center of attention and would act out when ignored. Punishing and whipping Charles for bad behavior didn't seem to have any effect on him. Lies were like breathing for five-year-old Charles, and whenever he was caught in a lie, he would always blame someone else. Bullies picked on Charles due to his tiny frame and his propensity to talk back to them. Charles' eight-year-old cousin, Joanne, was expected to watch out for him. One time, Charles got in an argument with a larger boy who promptly began beating him up. Joanne rushed to Charles' defense and bit the older boy's finger, scaring him off. Teachers were surprised that a mild-mannered girl like Joanne would get into a playground fight. 
She explained to teachers that the larger boy was bullying her cousin Charles, so she defended him. But when teachers tried to confirm Joanne's story with Charles, he lied and said that he wasn't involved. Luckily for Joanne, the teachers knew Charles was a habitual liar. They believed her. But the young girl now saw her cousin for what he was, a liar who was always willing to put the blame on anyone but himself. But Joanne became outright afraid of her cousin after an incident that took place when she was 10 and Charles was 7. Her parents needed to go out for the day, and Joanne was expected to babysit Charles and do the housework. Charles not only refused to help Joanne with her chores, he brought a sickle blade he found in the yard into the house and purposely disrupted her own attempt to do housework. When he refused to stop, Joanne kicked Charles outside and locked the screen door. Charles' response was terrifying. He screamed and slashed the door with his blade. The look in his eyes was horrifying. And Joanne was convinced that he planned to cut her with the blade if he got back inside. Even at this early age, Manson was showing signs of just how dangerous he could be. Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. Now the story continues. Charles Manson's behavior was troubling even as a young boy. In an adult, some of the traits that Charles Manson exhibited as a young boy might be considered consistent with symptoms of psychopathy, a condition commonly found in cult leaders. Psychopaths usually demonstrate traits of what psychologist Robert Hare has labeled aggressive narcissism. These traits include pathological lying, an inflated sense of self, a tendency to charm or manipulate others for personal gain, failure to accept responsibility, impulsivity, irresponsibility, lack of empathy, and shallow emotional affect, which means they don't feel emotions as strongly and the emotions pass by quickly. Other traits psychopaths exhibit are a lack of realistic goals, poor control over their temper, a tendency to be easily bored and seek out stimulation, a parasitic lifestyle where they leech off of others, and criminal behavior. So was Charles Manson a child psychopath? Well, psychiatrists don't like to label children as psychopaths. They instead prefer to say that children exhibit callous and unemotional traits, namely the ones I just described. Callous and unemotional children are, according to one study, up to three times more likely to become criminals and adult psychopaths. It's also been suggested in studies that psychopaths commit up to half of all violent crimes. Another interesting thing about callous and unemotional children is that they don't respond at all to punishment. Their brains are wired in such a way that they are completely indifferent to it. So how does Manson's childhood behavior stack up against the behaviors of callous and unemotional children? Now, I can't diagnose Manson, but many of the traits Manson exhibited in his childhood bear a strong resemblance to callous and unemotional traits. Pathological lying, blaming others, becoming easily bored, an inability to control his temper, and an indifference to being punished by his family members. So do these callous and unemotional traits explain Manson's behavior? Well, not necessarily. It's important to note that Manson may have not been suffering from any diagnosable mental illness, including the cluster of callous and unemotional traits that, if left unchecked, can develop into adult psychopathy. How is it possible that Manson doesn't suffer from mental illness? Aren't all mass murderers mentally ill? Well, a widely believed misconception is that most spree killers suffer from mental illness. 
Dr. Michael Stone, a New York psychologist, decided to study how many spree killers actually suffer from mental illness and created a database of over 200 mass murderers. So how many were mentally ill? Well, 25% showed indications that they suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. These are the killers whose murders could have been prevented if they were properly diagnosed and given the correct medications to treat their hallucinations. Another 25% of them indicated they suffered from a mixture of depression and callous and unemotional traits, which means that in addition to possessing a lack of empathy, these killers also possessed a strong feeling of despondency. Half of the spree killers showed no clear signs of a specific, diagnosable mental illness. But there has to be something that separates spree killers from normal, law-abiding citizens. Well, yeah. Many spree killers might have elements of different mental disorders, like narcissism and paranoia. But these elements may not be strong enough to qualify as mental illness. So, Charles Manson may have exhibited behaviors as a child that resemble callous and unemotional traits without actually suffering from a diagnosable mental illness. But what causes a child to exhibit these callous and unemotional traits? It's believed that a child can become callous and unemotional through nature or nurture. Some children are born empathetic, but they grow up with abusive parents in an unstable home and end up becoming callous and unemotional as a form of self-preservation and a reflection of their environment. These unemotional kids are the most treatable and most likely to be able to lead normal, productive lives if therapists are able to help them in time. The more dangerous children are the ones who are raised in loving homes and safe neighborhoods, yet from a very early age exhibit these same callous and unemotional behaviors as children who grow up in abusive homes and dangerous neighborhoods. These children are born with their brains wired differently. Even as toddlers, they crave stimulation. They constantly lie. They're callous. If they look like they're being sweet or empathetic, it's because they want something from you. But was Manson's behavior as a child a product of nature or nurture? That's difficult to say. Charles' behavior did start at a young age when he was just a toddler, and he acted out even against relatives who smothered him with affection, like his grandmother. On the other hand, there's no denying that Manson had a rough childhood. He experienced many traumatic events at a young age. Growing up with a mother who left him behind to party all the time could have made it difficult for Charles to form a proper attachment bond with her as an infant. Watching his mother get arrested and visiting her in prison was probably quite traumatic for the young boy. And these weren't the only traumatic experiences that Charles went through as a child. When Charles was five years old and living with his aunt and uncle, he started attending Mrs. Varner's first grade class. Mrs. Varner was infamous for verbally abusing and terrorizing the students in her class. Mrs. Varner spent Charles' first day at school relentlessly mocking him for having an imprisoned mother. Charles ran home crying. His uncle Bill was disgusted. He felt crying was for girls and girls only. So, he forced Charles to wear one of Joanne's dresses to school the following day, allegedly so he could toughen up and learn how to be a man. Decades later, Charles still remembered the humiliation of his uncle forcing him to wear a dress to school that day. It makes sense that this would be a formative memory for Charles. Cross-dressing in and of itself can be a very positive and beneficial form of expression for children who want to explore their gender identity. Children can, however, be deeply traumatized when they're forced by parental figures to cross-dress as the gender they know they aren't. 
Several different serial killers were forced to cross-dress when they were children by the adults in their lives. Manson lived with his aunt and uncle for two and a half years. He developed two main interests, a love of music and a love of guns. In late 1942, his mother Kathleen was paroled, and Manson went to live with her in Charleston. At first, Manson was thrilled to be living with his mother instead of his strict aunt and uncle. But Kathleen began to notice his son was displaying some disturbing behaviors. He constantly skipped school, and he spent most of his time trying to manipulate and sweet-talk women into giving him money to buy candy. Soon, Charles' behavior grew even more worrisome. He began stealing all the time and blaming others when he got caught. Kathleen asked her mother, Nancy, for help teaching Charles right from wrong. But Nancy's lectures on morality had little impact on her grandson. Researchers have found that lectures have as little effect on callous and unemotional children as punishing them. These days, researchers know that the best way to motivate an unempathetic child is by rewarding them. The reason callous children need so much stimulation is because their brains have overactive reward pathways. So even if the child cannot feel empathy, they can be motivated to exhibit good behavior if they are rewarded for it. Well, unfortunately for Kathleen, she had no idea how to get through to her son. She decided an institution for troubled boys might be able to instill some discipline and morality into Charles. So in 1947, when Charles was 12 years old, she sent him to the Gibault School for Boys, run by the Brothers of the Holy Cross. The instructors at Gibault described Charles as occasionally being likable, but also demonstrating a tendency toward moodiness and a persecution complex. In December of 1947, Charles was allowed to visit relatives for Christmas and spent the holidays with his aunt and uncle and his cousin Joanne, who encouraged her parents to invite the 13-year-old boy in an attempt to be charitable. Charles was quick to take advantage of his relatives' hospitality. While his aunt and uncle were away at church, he showed he hadn't given up his habit of stealing by attempting to steal his uncle's gun. His criminal behavior quickly escalated. A few months after returning to school, Charles ran away and began breaking into stores and robbing them. The 13-year-old was soon caught. In 1948, a judge sent him to Boys Town, the most famous school for troubled boys in the country. Charles didn't stay at Boys Town for long. Within four days of arriving, Charles and another boy named Blackie stole a car and drove to Illinois. Charles and Blackie used a gun to commit two armed robberies. They then attempted to make a living by helping out Blackie's uncle, a professional thief. Police caught Charles again. In early 1949, Charles was sent to Indiana Boys School, a much harsher reform school. Instead of living with misbehaving boys, the 14-year-old was now living with dangerous boys and young men who had committed a wide range of crimes. Some of them were hardened criminals who had committed armed robbery, assault, and manslaughter. Staffers and older boys regularly physically abused smaller, younger boys like Charles. Sexual abuse was rampant. According to Charles, he was brutally raped not long after arriving at the boys' school. Getting victimized and raped at a young age can cause severe psychological trauma, such as post-traumatic stress disorder and disassociation. Charles later described how this event traumatized him and warped his understanding of rape. Manson said himself, quote, You know, getting raped, they can just wipe that off. I don't feel that someone got violated and that's a terrible thing. 
I just thought, clean it off, and that's all that is. Charles' teachers made note of the manipulative traits he continued to demonstrate. They reported that he, quote, did good work only for those from whom he figured he could obtain something, end quote. Yet at the same time, there was no doubt that Charles was suffering at the boys' school. He lived in constant fear of being physically abused and raped, and this made for an incredibly traumatic and psychologically damaging environment. Charles later explained that this was when he developed what he called the insane game. Since he was too small to intimidate other inmates, he would try to scare them into believing he was crazy by flapping his arms and shrieking and making terrifying faces. Charles tried to escape four times in 1949 alone. In October of 1949, Charles and six other boys managed to escape the reform school. Police quickly caught the 14-year-old. But Charles wasn't finished with his escape attempts. In 1951, 16-year-old Charles and two other boys escaped and stole a vehicle. They were caught after only a few days. Charles was next sent to the National Training School. The 16-year-old continued to try to charm and manipulate others. His caseworker noticed this and commented, quote, This boy tries to give the impression that he is trying hard to adjust, although he's actually not putting forth any effort in this respect. Once again, Charles' behavior sounds eerily similar to that of callous children, criminal behavior, lying, and ever more sophisticated manipulation. Charles showed just how good he'd become at manipulating others by turning his charm on the psychiatrists at his school. Despite noting that he had a strong sense of inferiority, the school's therapist report also said, quote, one is left with a feeling that behind all this lies an extremely sensitive boy who has not yet given up in terms of securing some kind of love and affection from the world, unquote. Charles successfully convinced the counselors that his troubles in life stemmed from his own mother denying him love. The psychiatrist at the school believed Charles simply needed a confidence boost and recommended transferring him to a new school. Charles was sent to Nature Bridge. Unfortunately, Charles couldn't exhibit the good behavior necessary to earn parole. He was caught violently raping another boy with a switchblade held to the boy's throat. Charles was quickly transferred to the Federal Reformatory. He committed enough acts of sexual violence to be considered extremely dangerous. He was soon transferred to maximum security. Surprisingly, Charles made an effort to turn things around. He learned to read, became a model prisoner, and was released at the age of 19 to live with his aunt and uncle. He began attending church with his grandmother. It was here that Charles would pick up some of the imagery and ideas that he would repurpose for his cult. The idea of hell as a bottomless pit in Revelations, the idea that women should obey men, the admonition to abandon your own identity. Charles tried to make friends with the other Sunday school kids, but soon alienated them with talk of violence and drugs from his reform school days. So instead, he focused his energies on what would prove to be his singular talent, manipulating vulnerable girls. On a visit to his cousin Joanne's house, she noticed him buttering up a teenage girl who was at the house for counseling. Charles showered the girl with compliments, and Joanne quickly realized her cousin was making a calculated attempt to seduce the vulnerable girl. Joanne was so disturbed by Charles' manipulative behavior that she made him leave. Charles soon set his sights higher. 
When he was 20 years old, he proposed to a popular girl named Rosalie Willis. They were married on January 13, 1955. For a time after his marriage, Charles seemed like he was settling into a normal middle-class life in McMechan. He got a job, made some friends, and began learning chords on the guitar. But it wasn't to last. Rosalie became pregnant a few months into their marriage, so Charles began stealing cars for extra money. In the summer of 1955, Charles decided to leave McMechan and visit his mother in California. Charles and Rosalie drove to Los Angeles in a stolen car. Charles visited his mother and began enjoying life in L.A. But the stolen car was Charles' undoing. He was caught and charged with driving a stolen car across state lines, a federal crime. The judge had a psychiatrist, Dr. Edwin McNeil, examine Charles. Charles claimed that he didn't know how to live a productive life due to growing up in reform schools. Dr. McNeil noted that since Charles was married with a child on the way, he might be a candidate for probation. Charles was sentenced to five years probation, but facing another court date in February of 1956, he decided to skip town with Rosalie. He didn't evade police for long. On April 23rd of 1956, not long after the birth of his son, Charles Manson Jr., 21-year-old Charles was sent to San Pedro's Terminal Island Penitentiary. In prison, Charles learned from pimps how to take advantage of women's psychological weak points in order to manipulate them. The pimps taught Charles how to single out vulnerable girls who lack strong parental figures. The pimps explained how to use the same techniques commonly employed by domestic violence abusers, isolate the woman, convince her you're the only one who truly loves her, and beat her to keep her subservient and fearful. Charles also took a course created by Dale Carnegie, author of How to Win Friends and Influence People. This was the first class to truly gain Charles' interest in his entire life. Many of the ideas outlined in the book echoed Charles' manipulative tendencies. Charles would take one piece of advice from the book particularly to heart. Let the other fellow feel the idea is his. Charles got out of prison on September 30th, 1958. Rosalie had left him over a year ago, so Charles moved in with his mother. He soon attempted to become a pimp like the ones he had met and learned from in prison. By September of 1959, Charles was pimping out a young woman named Leona. He also fell back on his old habits, stealing money and cars. He was soon arrested again, and in June of 1961, the 26-year-old was sent to McNeil Island. Charles spent his latest stint in prison studying Scientology and learning additional ways to influence and manipulate others. He used the Scientology belief in past lives and immortal souls as a way to convince troubled women that he could help them let go of their traumatic pasts. He also finished learning how to play the guitar, feeding the passion for music he had retained from childhood. It was in prison that Charles would discover the Beatles. Charles wanted to be adored and beloved by the entire world, just like the Beatles. He began writing his own songs and planning for a career as a famous musician. Even the prison staff became hopeful that Charles would be able to secure work as a musician after he was released. By the time Charles was up for parole in 1967, the 32-year-old had spent most of his life in prison. To the prison authorities' surprise, he requested permission to stay. That's actually not as strange as it seems. Prison is a world of rules, a world that Charles knew how to survive and thrive in. 
As he admitted years earlier to the psychiatrist Dr. McNeil, he had no idea how to manage outside of prison. This actually represents an uncustomary amount of self-awareness on Charles' part. Unfortunately, despite Charles' request, he was paroled in 1967. Charles' parole officer gave him permission to relocate to San Francisco. It was the summer of love, and 100,000 young men and women were converging on the city. Having spent most of his life in prison, Charles was surprised to now see war protesters, throngs of hippies, and a prominent group known as the Black Panthers in the San Francisco streets. He was intimidated by these newly assertive and outspoken black men and women ready to fight for their rights. In San Francisco, Manson needed someone to take care of his living expenses. He spent a few days blending in with the protesters and hippies on Berkeley campus, studying the young people and learning to mimic them. He then charmed a young woman he met on campus named Mary Brunner, pretending he shared her idealism and social views. He quickly manipulated Mary into sleeping with him and giving him a place to live. Manson used the manipulative tactics he'd spent a lifetime developing with great success on Mary. He convinced her that only he could make her feel listened to, valued, special, and beautiful. Manson utilized the new concept he picked up from the hippies of free love to convince Mary into letting him bring other women home. Using his finely honed manipulative tactics to attract vulnerable women, Manson soon had a large group of devoted female followers. He began calling them the family. Manson used the idea he'd picked up all those years ago in church of women being subservient to men as an excuse to order the women in his family to sleep with whoever he ordered them to. Manson soon expanded his reach beyond San Francisco, traveling around in a rainbow-painted school bus and recruiting more women to join his cult. He moved the growing family to Los Angeles in the fall of 1967. In order to feed themselves, Manson and his followers foraged through dumpsters. In 1968, Manson and his followers took up residence at the Spawn Movie Ranch in Los Angeles. They lived there for free in exchange for doing chores. Manson initially wanted to use his women as tools to help him become a famous musician like the Beatles. Manson got his chance in the spring of 1968 when Dennis Wilson, drummer for the Beach Boys, spotted two of Manson's devotees hitchhiking and picked them up. Manson initially scared Wilson with his strange behavior. When they met, Manson greeted Wilson by bending down to kiss Wilson's shoes. But Manson soon ingratiated himself to Wilson by plying him with drugs and ordering women in the family to sleep with him. Manson also used his manipulative tactics to take advantage of Wilson's insecurities about his musical talents. Wilson even bought the rights to one of Manson's songs, Cease to Exist, and produced it with the Beach Boys. Through Wilson, Manson met Terry Melcher in 1968. The son of actor Doris Day, Melcher was a famous record producer. He regularly met with Manson at his home at 10050 Cielo Drive, the future site of Manson's most horrific murders. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, our story continues. I'm your kind, oh, your kind, I can see. Walk on, walk on. I love you, pretty girl. Terry Melcher had a lot of hits under his belt. 
producing albums for the Birds and the Beach Boys. Manson hoped that Melcher would be the one to finally make Manson the famous musician he longed to be. But Melcher decided not to sign Manson after witnessing him getting into a violent brawl with a stuntman at the Spawn Movie Ranch in June of 1969. Manson was furious with Melcher. The Beach Boys version of Manson's song, Cease to Exist, came out on December 2nd of 1968. Wilson had made a number of changes that enraged Manson. First of all, Wilson had changed the title of the song from Cease to Exist to Never Learn Not to Love. Secondly, Wilson had altered the song itself. He changed the song's style from blues to pop and rewrote some of the lyrics. What infuriated Manson the most was that Wilson didn't give Manson a writing credit. He listed himself as the only writer. Dennis Wilson was angry at Charles Manson and his family for mooching off him and racking up $100,000 in expenses. To get a bit of payback for all the trouble Manson had caused him, Wilson didn't credit Manson on Never Learn Not to Love. But Wilson had no idea how dangerous it was to make Manson angry. When Manson found out that he didn't have a writing credit on the song, he threatened to murder Wilson. Terrified, Wilson cut ties with Manson. By the summer of 1969, Manson no longer had any contacts in the music industry. He was furious that his dream of becoming a famous musician had been shattered, and he blamed everyone but himself. This fits with Manson's pattern of behavior as a child, where he always blamed others for his bad behavior. But while Manson may have lost the support of Wilson and Melcher, he had the undying loyalty of his cult, the family. He painted a terrifying picture of an apocalyptic future for his family members. There would soon be an inevitable race war. African-American militants would incite a bloody war between racist white people and liberal white people who wanted African-Americans to have civil rights. The few white people that survived the war would then be slaughtered by the African-American militants. The family would survive the African-American uprising by finding a bottomless pit in Death Valley that would lead them to a secret underground city. The Manson family could live underground in safety as the war raged above them. But at the end of the war between African-Americans and white people, Manson's family would be the only white people left. With the old corrupt civilization purged by the African-American uprising, Manson's family would be free to emerge from their underground city and rule over the African-Americans. Manson fervently believed African-Americans were too stupid and uncivilized to govern themselves. He genuinely thought they would welcome Manson's rule. After the Beatles' White Album dropped on November 22, 1968, Manson became obsessed with the album's songs. As he listened to the White Album over and over, Manson became convinced that the album offered clues about the upcoming race war. Manson began calling the race war Helter Skelter after the Beatles song that he believed hinted at the upcoming apocalypse. Ironically, the Beatles had named their song after an amusement park ride for children. We discussed earlier that 25% of spree murderers potentially suffer from paranoid schizophrenia. Manson's belief in an apocalyptic race war seems delusional. Is it possible that Manson was schizophrenic? 
Commissioner Robles, who decades after Manson's killings served as a member on Manson's parole board, believed so. He described Manson as suffering from schizophrenia and a paranoid delusional disorder, in addition to exhibiting manipulative behavior. On the other hand, an FBI agent who interviewed Manson in prison in order to understand his psychology found him to be manipulative and a pathological liar, but not insane. He described Manson's personality as psychopathic, which of course matches the callous and unemotional behavior Manson had displayed since childhood. So while it is a valid theory that Manson suffered from a paranoid delusional disorder, there is certainly no consensus that he suffered from schizophrenia. Manson had seen the power the Beatles held over their fans, and Manson thought he could use music to trigger the impending race war. But when Manson's efforts to ignite the race war through releasing a musical album with Melcher fell apart in June of 1969, he decided to start the race war more directly. Just two months later, Manson and his family would murder seven innocent people in order to initiate the uprising. Sharon Tate and her four friends were killed on August 9th of 1969 at 10050 Cielo Drive, Terry Melcher's former address. Rosemary and Lino LaBianca were brutally stabbed to death the following night. The most startling thing about Manson's murders was that he didn't have to kill anyone directly. Making use of those same manipulative tactics he had been practicing since he was a small child, Manson convinced a group of ordinary, fresh-faced young men and women to commit his murders for him. Next week, we'll discuss how Manson was able to manipulate a group of young people with no criminal backgrounds into committing some of the most savage murders in American history. We will learn more about the psychology of cults and how they reshape the behavior of their followers as we answer key questions about the Manson family. Who were Manson's family members? Why did they follow him? Why is it so difficult for intelligent men and women to leave a cult once they have joined? How did Manson indoctrinate his followers and turn them into criminals and murderers? How was Manson able to derail the lives and ruin the futures of so many young men and women? Join us next week to find out. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Mm -hmm. Join us next Tuesday as we continue delving into the twisted psychology behind the Manson family. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Jeanette Manning and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>